I thought about my good friend, Brother Johnny Harold, tonight. I remember several times I would call him early on in my pastoral journey, and uh, I would ask him what he was going to do on Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning, what he was going to preach or what he was going to be talking about. And many times I remember him saying, well, I tell you what, I think we're just going to take a ride around tonight. So I'm just going to tell you up front, just get in, buckle up. We're going to take a ride tonight. Isaiah chapter 53. Reading beginning with verse number one, he said, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Amen. And with his stripes, we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him... He was oppressed of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He became, because he was, he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he, has num- and he was numbered 
with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I really wanted to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I didn't think you could endure all of that tonight. I didn't want to read the whole books, but I did want to read the events that begin on Saturday before the crucifixion and follow him through that last week of his life. And I don't think there's a better portion of Scripture that sums up what you can find written in those accounts than what we've read from tonight. I want to talk to you for a little while, and I'm going to try to be brief tonight. Principles when living under pressure. Principles for living under pressure. Everybody said amen. You may be seated. I've been thinking a lot the past few weeks about this coming season of Easter. And this week in particular, I've been thinking a lot about the events that led up to the cross and ultimately to the tomb and the resurrection. Really, you could take your pick from any of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all have something to say. And I like to read all of them because they all have a little different perspective and different uh, things that they add to the events that help me understand it a little more fully. By the way, Sister Lavelle, it's good to see you tonight. I meant to tell you that earlier. Great church that Brother Rob McKee pastors. She's the right arm of that church. Don't tell him I said that, but she is. Amen. <clears throat> they always said, what, what, <laughs> and that succeed is a mother-in-law that's surprised. <laughs> but uh, what a great lady and what a great contribution her and her husband have made to that church. I was so thrilled to be there for their 18th anniversary and so many great things God's done through the years, but that's just epilogue. All right, let's get back to tonight. It is essential to me, and I think it should be essential to you, that we never forget, never forget, or get away from what transpired that week in his life. I I was astonished when I went back and began reading it again this week at all of the things that happened during that frame of time. Uh, It was a lifetime of work and ministry crammed into just a few days. And I'm going to give you a little timeline in a moment and maybe it'll help you kind of filter uh, some of the things that were going on during that time. But to me... It is vitally important that I stay connected to what has brought me to where I am. The blessings that I enjoy tonight, the freedom to worship, the the touch of God, the move of the Holy Ghost that we experienced around here Sunday night, all of those are a byproduct of what happened in this week of time that changed life for everybody. And I am grateful. I cannot read 
about the cross without something inside of me being moved. And I want to always feel that way because the cross must always, always be a central theme of our life because it is central to our salvation. The self-denial, the taking up of the cross, the following, the laying down of his life, the suffering, all that happened. There is something about those events that can never become just a story. They can never become just part of history. But we have to cherish them for what they are, the price of my freedom and my salvation. And when you look at the week as a whole and all that transpired, it is, it is amazing. It starts on a Saturday with supper at Bethany and a woman who slips in with an alabaster box and breaks it and she anoints him for that coming event in the coming days. And, and then Sunday dawns and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem And many things that went on that day. And then he retires to Bethany for the night. And again he comes back on Monday to Jerusalem. And in the time frame there's a fig tree that is cursed. And there's a a lesson and a principle that he teaches his disciples. And he talks to them about what we preach Sunday morning. About uh, speaking to that mountain rather than letting that mountain speak to you and he he taught them how important it was uh in in the things that you speak and and on that monday he went in and he cleansed the temple and uh the bible said he ran out the money changers and he turned the tables over and then when all of that had been cleared out they brought him the city it's what this house showed them and ministered to them, showing them this is what this house should be about. And then Tuesday was his last day in the temple. And in that time frame, you will find his authority challenged and you will read several parables that he gives to his disciples about the kingdom and the teachings that he shared there. It was in that discourse that He was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he gave them that greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. But he said, let me give you one that is equal to that. And that is you love your neighbor as yourself. There was the denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the rebuke that came upon them because of the hypocrisy and the and the facade and the veneer that they had projected to people in uh, in their in their attempts to try to prop up some dead religious formality and then it closes with him looking out over Jerusalem weeping lamenting that this was Jerusalem's day and they were not aware of it and then Wednesday was a quiet day in Bethany and then dawns the Thursday that began a multitude of things. The preparation for the Passover, the Last Supper, in that time he divulges his betrayal. He shares with them the Last Supper. 
And he transposes this, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual analogy. He now takes that fruit of the vine that was part of the Passover supper and the celebration. And he said, this this is my body that I am going to pour out for you. This is the blood of my covenant. I'm making a new covenant with you. This is going to be the substance of that covenant, my blood. And he takes the bread that was so vital, a part of their celebration, and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body. I'm breaking it. Now, it wasn't, there, there's no physical transcendation uh, or whatever, some denomination. But there was a spiritual analogy he was trying. He was telling them that these are symbolic of what I am about to do for you. And then... He tells about his betrayal and, and from there he leaves. And the Bible said as they exited the upper room, they sang a hymn. I love that. I, I've always gone back and read that again and again. That in the midst of all that's transpiring, he still had a song in his heart. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. But he goes into Gethsemane and then the agonies of Gethsemane. I read that today. Again, and I cannot help but feel a deeper sense of appreciation that somebody cared enough for me that he would go through the agonies of that garden. It was not wrestling with anything but the will of flesh, not wanting to do what was before it, but he wrestled the flesh down And he submitted it to the higher purpose and the calling of God. And then there was the betrayal. And uh, Peter whipping out a sword to show his, his, his disgust with what was going on. And he takes a swipe at a soldier's head and misses but cuts his ear off. And the Lord tells him to put his sword up. This isn't time for, puts it in arms and he reaches down and he picks up. Uh, that ear that's been severed and he puts it back and it's just whole like it was before it ever happened. And you would, in my mind, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, surely, I don't care how hard people's hearts are. I don't care how brutal people are. When they see that kind of transformation and miracle, something ought to happen, but nothing, nothing changes their plan. Nothing alters the, the anger and the hatred the venom that was spewing out of those in that hour. And uh, on Friday, early in the morning, began the first trial. I didn't realize until I started reading it again, but he basically went through six trials in one day. Went through the first trial before Annas, and then the second trial before Caius, and then the third trial before the Sanhedrin, and then the first trial before Pilate, and then the second trial before Herod, and then back the third time before Pilate. And all the time, Pilate's trying to wash his hands and say, Herod and I have looked at this. There's no reason to do what you're, you're wanting us to do. Here, here's the deal. If, if they did it according to their law, they would have had to stone him. But that would have been contradictory to what Scripture had said was going to happen to him. And they didn't want that on them anyway. And so they put it off on the Roman. This is your law. This is how you deal with people like this. You crucify them. And so it was that it was determined that crucifixion it would be in the road to the cross and then the crucifixion. 
the gambling for his garments, and then the, the events that transpired from six to nine, there was darkness that covered the face of the earth. And there was a shaking and, and the giving up of the ghost. And then Saturday was a quiet day. The body is in the grave, but the spirit is in another place of opening prison doors, according to what Scripture goes on to tell us, loosening and freeing. And Sunday comes in its resurrection day. All of that in a week of time. And I just, I just touched the surface. But while I was reading all that this week, I, I'm going to try to condense this real quick. While I was reading all that this week, I thought, you know, here are some of the greatest principles for living under pressure that you'll find anywhere in the Bible or in any self-help book that I've ever come across. That if you consider from Saturday and all of the events that begin to snowball toward the cross and the crucifixion and the speed at which they begin to gain in their movement and the, the mounting pressure the hatred, the pure venom that was spilled out on him because of what he claimed and who he claimed that he was and, and, and all of the other issues. And yet, when I read about him, I am stunned and I am amazed at how he responded to those situations and how he reacted or did not react when things were said and, and things were done. And, and so when I began to read all of that, I thought, man, these are some of the greatest life lessons that anybody could read about. Just look at him in, in this context. Read those passages of Scripture again. And begin to look and listen to what is going on. And, and watch his response. And see how he reacts. And listen to what he says. More so, listen to what is not said. More than that, look at what he does. But even greater, look at what he refuses to do. All of this with pressure on pushing down on him. And this is what came to me. The principles that you live by are what will keep you in the end. No matter what the pressure is. No matter what kind of adversity your life is lived under. No matter what you're being assaulted by or accused of. Those principles that you personally choose, that are the bedrock of your life, who you are, who you claim you are, who you say you're going to be, those are the things that will keep you in the end. Amen. And so I started looking. And you know what? really doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what time frame you live. All of us are going to live under pressure of some kind at some point. But how you respond to that pressure is indicative of who you are. Man. And that is important. We're all going to encounter situations and people and life that are going to challenge who we say we are. We're going to all have to die to some things in life. We're going to go through some dying 
situations. All of us are going to have to suffer in some measure in life. Things that are unfair. Things that are not right. All of us, all of us, all of us are at some point in life going to have to suffer or we're going to be made to suffer betrayal. We're going to be made to suffer the loss of trust or confidence. People that we thought were our friends will walk away from us. People will leave us. People will forsake us. At some point in life, Everybody in this building is going to have to learn how to live through lonely times. And you're going to have moments when even you are going to ask why. He did. After all he had gone through, the pressures and all of the, the, the bitterness and the and the accusations and the lies and the trumped up charges and all of the false witnesses. He, 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 he came to that moment when even he said, why hast thou forsaken me? We're all going to have to live through that. But even with that, what I noticed even under that kind of pressure, There were certain things that Jesus did not abandon and he did not leave and he did not deny or he did not walk away from. And they were key to the victory. I believe they were key to victory and living beyond that moment, living beyond those problems. And I think it's important that just as Jesus had to have seen beyond the crucifixion, he, you and I have to see beyond the problem that we're dealing with. We cannot let it lock us in. And, and this is just my life. And it's just because when you get locked into that kind of living and that kind of thinking, you can make some tragic mistakes and you can say some really dumb things. <laughs> and more than that, you can do some really dumb things. You can throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you know what I'm saying. You know, one of the stories of the Old Testament that's always intrigued me is that Jonah story. Now, get this. There was a boat that was already in harbor, that already had a destiny, and it already had a manifest that was full of supplies that they were taking to another port. They had no idea that a guy by the name of Jonah was going to come along and going to piggyback on their boat and go with them and cause them so much trouble. But you read that story and you look at what happened before they ever figured out what the problem was. They threw everything that they were carrying. All of their cargo was thrown overboard before they figured out it wasn't the cargo that was causing them trouble. It was Jonah. And I've watched people in my lifetime, in my few years of pastoring, go through things in their life, 
and they start throwing this out and that away and this away and that away and this away and that away, trying to figure out where the problem is and we got to lighten the load. We got to make this a little easier to go through. And then when they come down to figuring out what the problem is, they don't have anything else to, sh- to go to shore for. They have no reason to keep sailing on because everything they were in, in, in the process of doing is back out there in the ocean somewhere. Be careful what you throw overboard when you're under pressure. Be careful what you choose to abandon when problems are going on in your life because that may not be what you need to let go of right now. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. I better hurry or I'm not going to get through very quickly. I have 15 minutes. I'm going to stop in 15 minutes. This is what somebody said that I read today. He said, how we die and how we suffer is telling. It is in death that we find out a person's true character. It's when they are faced with death that we find out who they really are. And sometimes that does not have to be a physical death. It can be spiritual death that you go through. But it is when they die. And how they die that shows people what and who they were. And when you watch him die. And you see how he died. He taught us how to do it. And how to do it gracefully. And how to do it victoriously. How one dies is telling of who they are. And here's a great example As far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest examples. I wish I knew how to write books. I think I'd write a book about that last week of his life and the life principles that you can garner from watching him in that last week of his life. If you only, somebody wrote a book a while back about if you had a month to live, I think. One of the pastors here in the Houston area. And if you only had 30 days to live, how would you live those 30 days? Well, let's let's cut that down. Let's just make it one week. If you only had one week to live, what would you want people to know and say about you when that week was over? How would you want them to talk about you? To live by that if I about you and in one week's time, he gives us enough principles to live by that if I can just capture a few of them, I think I might make it. Amen. Somebody say amen. Somebody nod like you're still awake. All right. Either I got you mesmerized or you're about half asleep right now. And I know I don't have you mesmerized, but anyway. How did he deal with pressure? How did he react to disappointment? How did he speak in situations of pressure? How he viewed himself. Oh, I've got to think of how he viewed himself in this whole process is vital to what happened and what he said and what he didn't say. And I think when we're going through problems and stress and trouble, it is important how we view ourselves during that time because we can never allow ourselves to become a victim of our circumstances or a victim of our situation. This is what he said going into the whole week. He said, I lay down my life. They don't take my life. I'm giving it. Nobody's making me. So he, he didn't, he, he, he saw himself as moving into this week with divine purpose in his life. I'm not being drugged into this. I'm not having to go through this. How many times have you and I said, well, I'm just having to deal with some things right now. 
I've said it. I'm guilty. I repented today. I'm repenting right now. But you never read him saying, I have to do this. He said, I lay it down. I do it willingly. I give my life. No one takes my life. Amen. What a way to look at life. That It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter the pressures that you feel. You do not allow yourself to become a victim of those circumstances or a victim of your pressures. And how he responded to his enemies. Oh, my goodness. There's, there's a whole Bible study on that. How he responded to betrayal. How he responded to the failure of his own disciples. How do you deal with, with that? Sometimes you just want to take a hammer and hit them in the head and tell God they died. After I poured all of this into them. And then they all fled and left him. How he responded to their false accusations and how he held himself in the time of the brutal attacks against his own character. I mean, there's, you, you can talk about my dog, you can talk about my car, you can talk about my clothes, you can talk about my house. I mean, you can talk about a lot of stuff in my life and it doesn't bother me, but don't start talking about me. Well, you just have this problem. That gets personal. But that all the whole week was a personal attack. And you watch how he reacted and how he responded and how he, more than that, how he held himself. Sometimes the victory is a just showing up. Not in saying anything, but just showing up. You know what I tell people that have failed? Your biggest victory is going to be the next service when you walk back in that back door and sit on the pew. Because you're, you're not telling just the church that you're not going to die. But you're telling the devil, you, you, you're not going to get me. I'm not dying in my dilemma. Amen. Alright, so here's the, was that he moves with life lessons. Number one was that he moves with purpose. He moved with purpose from the beginning of Saturday to the end of Friday. And through that time in between, he moved with purpose. He is not driven by his problem. He is led by his purpose. What a a principle to live by. Because problems are everywhere. They're like the poor. Jesus said you have them with the hallways. They're, they're, they're just some elements of life that you're never going to get away from. And problems are one of those. You're never going to live a problem-free life. But you're going to live one of two ways in your life. You're either going to live ahead of your problems and leading those things. Or you're going to be, you, you, they're going to be shoving you, pushing you, driving you. And everything in your life is going to be a reaction from one problem to the next problem. And yet you see another person in a church, they go through similar circumstances and, 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 and there's a whole different atmosphere. What's the difference? The difference is that one of them is being driven by a problem. The other one is living by a purpose. 
A purpose-driven life is more than just a good book to read or a cute saying. There's something powerful about living with a divine purpose and a calling, knowing who you are, knowing what you have in your life, knowing what he has done for you, knowing what he has given to you. Amen. He walked with purpose. There's a confident tone. He does not wander into town. He moves into town. He tells his disciples, okay, you're going to go in town. When you get in town, there's going to be a guy walk by you with a vessel of water. You follow him. Wherever you get to that house, tell him, I need to borrow the room. We're going to have our Passover. Now, you think about the, 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 the colliding of circumstances and, and timing and everything. And then he tells them, just go in town. You're going to find a donkey tied. Bring that one. There's never been anybody ride on it. How did he know that? Because he already had, there was purpose. He was living, by, by, driven, not by his problem and not by what was wrong and the, by the pressure. But he was being led by a divine purpose. Amen. Amen. Well, I better hurry. He said, I go to Jerusalem. I love that. I go to Jerusalem. I'm not being driven. Number two, he spoke of the cross as his glory. Read the book of John and from about, what, 13? In 13 where it begins? Chapter 13 all the way through to about chapter 21 or 20. Somewhere in there is this upper room. Or there, there, there's this discourse and, 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 and the prayer. You want to read the real Lord's Prayer? I believe it's found in John 17, isn't it? The real Lord's Prayer is found in John 17. But listen at how many times the word glorify is used. He knew what was about. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to have to go through. He already understood part of the process He understood all of the outgoing. And yet he said, this is my glory. It's going to be to glorify, 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 glorify. I wish I understood the definition of the word glorify. I'd want to share that with you tonight. I meant to call my brother and ask him what the Greek side, because my computer wouldn't work. But glued his cross, the pain, the you and I need to understand, because that's how he viewed his cross. The pain, the suffering, the hurt, the, the all that went into making the cross what it was. He did not view that as some negative thing in his life. But he viewed it as his glory. His making. This is going to vindicate who I am. This is going to vindicate what I have said. This is going to bring to pass everything that has been promised from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Amen. When you and I can learn to speak of our crosses in those terms, we have won a great victory. That this is going to make me. A better man, a better woman, a better person. I'm going to have a better attitude. Instead of, oh, me, Brother Hughes, I just don't understand. And I said it. I'm, I'm just telling my, I'm going, to, I'm going to confess. I've said it. I don't understand. I, I don't, there's nothing fair about this. It's not right. But when I can step back and realize the whole purpose of this cross thing is to make me who I say I am. And you cannot be made who you are without a cross in your life. 
And I cannot become the man or you cannot become the person you are supposed to be without a cross in your life. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, number one, take up your cross, your cross, and follow me. Now, your cross is not your wife or it's not your husband and it's not your kids. So get over that one. But your cross... Is something that puts enough pressure on you that we find out what you really are. And he said, take up your cross and follow me. And do what I've done. Live like I've lived. Amen. I love that. My goodness, I love that. Number three, he prayed. Now, I know that doesn't sound real spiritual to some of you, but he prayed. You better not ever forget to pray when you're under pressure. Because your greatest ally is prayer under pressure. And he prayed. He prayed. The intensity of his prayer was such that he sweated. And his sweat was like great drops of blood. Something broke inside of him. Prayer that was so deep that a fountain broke. And the mixture of water and blood. And it oozes out of his pores. The pressure that he was under. It was enough to make anybody lose their mind. But he didn't lose his mind. He found the mind that he needed. Because it was out of that prayer meeting that he was willing and able to say, Not my will, but thine will be done. Amen. You better learn how to pray. You better understand the value of prayer when you're under pressure. Because that's the only thing that will help you say what you need to say in those critical moments. Not my will. Not my will. Not my will, but thine be done. Number four. I noticed the things that he said and the things he would not say. He he said he could have called how many? 10,000 angels. Is that right? But I didn't bring about his power and authority. He said I could have. But I didn't. Isn't it, isn't it incredible that he had such character that though he had access to something that could have annihilated those idiots, he chose to leave it alone and let it work its way out. He could have knocked every one of them in the head. He could have shown Caesar who was really king. And high potent. He could have shown Herod who was the most powerful. He could have shown Pilate who was most powerful. But he chose to leave it alone. I wonder what kind of peace could come into homes and families if some could just leave some stuff alone. I wonder what would happen in my own personal life if I could learn to bite my tongue. And not say some things. If you don't say it, you don't have to repent of it. Is that a theology or not? I don't know if that's doctrine or not, but that's. But he, 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 he would. He said, "I could have, but I didn't. 
I'm going to tell you what the real test of character when you're under pressure is what you could do, but you don't do. I could really hurt them right now. You know what? I'm going to tell you something about hurting people. You better learn how to leave that to God. Because really in the end, the only person that I have ever hurt was myself. The bitterness, the resentment, the anger. It tried to get rooted and I had to pray it out. I had to beat it out. I had to say, no, 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 no. You're not coming in my house. You're not living in my heart. I'm not letting you have... You you may have knocked on my door, but you're not staying here tonight. Amen. And so he could have, but he chose not to. He, 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 He could... Another thing, when he was on the cross, one of the first things they did was offer him a mixture of vinegar and gall. Now... He, the Bible said he refused to take that. You would have thought after all, he, I, I read a medical report about what all was happening at that moment in the blood that was coagulating and becoming so thick in his body because of the loss of body fluids that a little liquid would have revived him. It would have helped him. The only problem was what they were giving him was actually a narcotic that they gave to those being crucified that would help numb the pain. And he said, no, I'm not going to numb my pain. I'm going to suffer it. I'm going to live through it, I'm going to live past it. It'd be great if our culture right now could learn the principle of quit trying to numb our pain and just understand some things you just have to think that through. He would not take that. He, he would not drink that, that narcotic that would have numbed his system. He suffered how he responded to his enemies. He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How he responded to their accusations. The Bible said when Herod and Pilate, Pilate in particular, when he made some strong accusations, the Bible said he answered him not a word. He held his peace. When I read that, I thought, oh God, what? kind of pain what I have helped keep out of my life and somebody else's life if I could have just held my peace. If I could have just not said anything. I wonder what could be saved in our lives if we could develop the habit of just holding our peace. Can I finish? I'm, I'm through. I, I better stop. Can I go one more? All right. I'm not trying to be facetious tonight. I, I didn't want to preach long tonight. But You see, it's a trick of the enemy to drag me down to his level. And that's what happens when we get under pressure and we live in problems, either by people or whatever we're dealing with. There's a, there's a struggle that goes on to try to drag you down to that level. And he refused to take the bait. 
He refused to take the bait. He said, no, I have a higher purpose than that. I have a higher calling than that. And so he, he refused what he would not say, what he did not do. Those are the things. He refused to let them drag him down to their level. They said things that would get a reaction out of him. I read them again today very carefully, very carefully. The things that were said, and there was a bite to them. There was this, there was this sarcasm. You know, I hate people when they get sarcastic with me. You know, it's just like they're digging you, goading you, saying, come on, I know what, I know how to get your goat. I know, I, I, I'll say something here in a minute that'll, that'll tick you off. And they just kept throwing that stuff out there. And he just looked at them. Amen. He, he opened not his mouth. He's, he, he, even when they made these statements that were lies, he didn't say anything. God help us to understand the principle of holding our peace. One thing I notice more, and I, I can't tell you all the instances, but if you go back and read it, I think you'll understand, is that when he talked, when he spoke, he addressed the issues. He did not attack the individual. That, my friend, is a powerful lesson. Because when people are attacking you, our natural response is to attack back. And typically, our attack is on them. You hit me, I'm going to hit you. You say something bad about me, I'm going to say something bad about you. You lie about me, I'm going to... No. <laughs> you, you got the message. But he, when he spoke... He addressed the issue, not the idiot behind the issue. For instance, Pilate said, Herod said, you say you're king? You say you're king? And, and Jesus wouldn't answer him for a while. He said, no, I didn't say that. You said I was king. He never claimed to be their king. He lived there. He was their king, but... He, 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 they were, they were trying to put in his mouth things that he had not said. And that's what trouble and pressure will do. It'll try to put stuff in your mouth for you to say and you to think or you to do that's, that has nothing to do with who you are and what your purpose is. But he didn't attack the man. He addressed the issue. And if you and I could learn when we're living under pressure to try to have enough calm about us, and enough good sense to deal with the issue, not try to attack a person, you could get through your trouble a whole lot easier. I could get through it. When you live under pressure, it's easy to become an attack dog. I'm shutting down. Stand up with me so I will. But when you know who you are, and you don't bow to the level of the accuser, something happens. You see, there are some things that are just not worth responding to. That's been one of the things that I have been highly gifted with as a pastor that has irritated some people to the high heavens. In my 25 years, and I'm just going I'm, I'm going to be transparent with you. 25 years, you get to deal with a lot of issues and things. And in those 25 years, I've had people do things wanting to get a reaction out of me. 
And I don't know if it's my personality. I really think it's God's grace. Because I'm not smart enough to figure this one out. But a long time ago, I made up my mind. I'm not reacting to that. Because if I react to that, I've lowered myself to their level. And now we got a problem. Because on their level, I'm just like they are. I'm going to hurt somebody. They're going to hurt somebody. Nothing good's going to come out of it. But it would help all of us to be gifted. And I need it more than ever right now to just leave some stuff alone. Just don't, don't, don't touch it. Don't, don't feel like you've got to react to it or respond to it. What's, what, I'm telling you, some of the most powerful principles for living under pressure that I've ever considered anywhere in life. The last week of his life, go read it. Between now and Sunday, I challenge you to get your Bible out and start in Matthew and read those, those, the account of that last week from Saturday. The entering, find where it talks about him going to Bethany and they anointed him the, the, with the oil the woman did. Find, start reading there and read through the crucifixion and just let it sink into you how he dealt with life and people and pressure and all that was wrong. And he came out victorious. He was able to keep his head up long enough to say, it is finished. Amen. It is finished. Victory. That's the literal translation. Victory. You can't say that unless you live through some stuff. 